What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 27, The March on London. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we covered the Battle of Edge Hill, the first pitched battle of the English Civil Wars, though not the last. The Royalist cavalry chased off their parliamentarian opponents, only to keep on chasing them all the way off the battlefield. The bulk of the parliamentarian infantry managed to hold their ground long enough for their reserve cavalry to break through the Royalist lines and make a devastating counterattack. By the time the Royalist cavalry returned, both sides were exhausted, and night was falling. After spending the next day posturing at one another, the Parliamentarian forces under the Earl of Essex withdrew. Charles I now had an open path to London. Both Parliamentarian and Royalist propagandists made hay about Edge Hill. Both claimed that it was a victory, and that their enemies were only saved from utter annihilation by sunset. In reality, neither side defeated their opponents. If they had, then the first pitched battle of the English Civil War might have been the only pitched battle of the English Civil War. Instead, both armies withdrew, largely intact, and the conflict continued. Charles remained committed to marching on London, but oddly enough, he doesn't appear to have been in a rush to take the capital, and instead took a much more cautious approach. Instead, on the 27th of October, the Royalist army arrived at Banbury, the parliamentary town which had been his initial target before Essex caught up with him at Edge Hill. The garrison officers, quote, did run away, and the soldiers did deliver the town up without discharging one musket, end quote. Banbury in hand, Charles then advanced on Broughton Castle, the ancestral home of Viscount Say and Seal one of the Puritan lords who had been such a thorn in Charles's side for more than a decade at this point. Broughton Castle attempted to resist the Royalists, but Say and Seal's men surrendered the fortress after the Royalists brought up their siege artillery. With the home of one of his most ardent foes in his hands, Charles continued south towards Oxford. 
the university town offered no resistance to the royalist army and instead welcomed Charles into the city. The king entered it in triumph just six days after the Battle of Edge Hill. It's important to note that Charles had been issuing a steady series of blanket pardons throughout his march, with notable exceptions. Ordinary subjects had been misled or tricked or coerced into fighting their rightful sovereign, and while obviously that was a terrible, terrible crime, Charles could overlook that. Charles could not overlook the actions of the leadership, those men who had misled, tricked or coerced the ordinary subjects into taking up arms against their king. For example, when passing through Oxfordshire, his proclamation of his majesty's grace, favour and pardon excluded Viscount and Seal, whose house he just took. The leaders of this rebellion would have to work for a pardon, or else face the punishment owed the crime, just like every other rebel leader in English history. Charles spent five days in Oxford as he and his advisers debated the next step. Charles did not want to take London by force if he could avoid it. Besides the difficulty and the riskiness of such a gambit, slaughtering half his capital while insisting he was defending the liberties of Englishmen was a bit of a tough sell. In addition to that, Charles wasn't some bloodthirsty tyrant, no matter what parliamentarian propagandists insisted. He wasn't itching to slaughter his innocent subjects. Some of Charles's advisers believed that if the king arrived on the outskirts of London, the city would capitulate without a fight. There was a belief among them that London was so divided by the war, and that only a small minority of the population was actually determined to fight the king, that his appearance would be a catalyst for a peace faction to take control of the city. Or at least, the defence of the city would be fatally weakened. While the army was in Oxford, a loose end was tied up. If you recall, last time we heard how Essex knew exactly what the Royalists were up to because Rupert's private secretary, Blake, was a spy for the Parliamentarians. He'd been feeding Essex information for God knows how long, and he'd been an invaluable asset for the commander. But, as we also heard last time, during the Battle of Edge Hill, the Royalist cavalry chased their opponent's cavalry off the field and set about raiding the Parliamentarian baggage. Alongside whatever treasure and supplies they made off with, the cavalry also took a package of letters. When these documents were examined, lo and behold, some of them were from Blake. The secretary was tried for treason at Oxford, found guilty, and hanged as a spy. After debating it with his council, Charles decided to march on London. The king's army made its way down the Thames Valley, looting parliamentary homes and communities along the way. On the 4th of November, Reading was taken without resistance as Parliament had withdrawn the garrison. It was in Reading that Charles received a peace proposal from Parliament. News of Edge Hill had prompted both Houses of Parliament to reconsider a peaceful conclusion to the violence. Charles listened to the peace offer, but he was non-committal, and the commissioners returned to London. By the 7th, Charles's vanguard was near Windsor, where Prince Rupert attempted to take Windsor Castle without success. By the 11th, the main royalist force was at Colnbrook, just 20 miles from the city of London. This was quite a fast advance for the royalist army, but, of course, it wasn't fast enough for young Prince Rupert. True to form, the Prince of the Rhine demanded action. 
Once the army reached Oxford, he had proposed a rapid advance of 3,000 musketeers, all the dragoons, and all the cavalry, led by himself, to march straight to London and take it. Unfortunately for Rupert, and perhaps for the royalist cause, though we'll talk about that in a moment, his idea was shot down. Prince Rupert was, quote, a young man and naturally passionate, end quote. This passion could, quote, possibly be urged in heat of blood to fire the town, end quote. In other words, even if Rupert did capture London, he was a bit of a loose cannon, and without the wisdom of cooler heads, he might burn the capital to the ground. And that was only if he managed to capture it, and that was a big if. As we talked about last time, London's militia had been rebuilt after its members marched off with Essex, and would have outnumbered this vanguard two to one. The citizens of the city had also begun fortifying their home, and without any artillery to defeat these defences, Rupert might have been stuck outside the capital, unable to get in. And of course, while the prince was off gallivanting with all of Charles's cavalry and a large chunk of his infantry, Essex could arrive with his army and destroy the undermanned and cavalryless royalists. It was a bold risk, without a guarantee of success, and so it's perhaps for the best that it was shot down. Charles was 20 miles from London on the 11th of November. So, what on earth was Essex doing? Essex had withdrawn to Warwick to recuperate his army after Edge Hill, and he kept up to date with the royalist advance through scouts and spies. Though, of course, not from Blake, who was busy dancing the hangman's jig. He remained at Warwick until the 28th of October, at which point he got his army moving again. First to Northampton, then to St Albans, and from there, Essex's army marched down the old Roman road straight to London. So despite giving the king a head start, Essex arrived in the city on the 7th of November. Whatever the prospects of Rupert's suggestion, it was a moot point now. While camped at Colnbrook, parliamentary commissioners returned to sound out the king. Possibly seeing that his negotiation position was relatively strong, Charles was now much more open to the idea of discussing peace terms. He asked the commissioners for some time to consider the matter, and the commissioners agreed returning to London to inform Parliament. But that night, Rupert scouted ahead of the army and found a large parliamentary force was blocking their advance to the city. Now, Charles felt cheated. Parliament was clearly attempting to use the time he'd requested for considering peace to prepare better for war. Urged on by those on his council, notably Rupert, who advocated a show of strength, the next morning... Charles ordered his army to advance on London. For Parliament, they'd spent the night debating what to do, and Nick Lipscomb notes that they'd agreed on a secession of hostilities while negotiations were ongoing. The commanders of the parliamentary force blocking the road weren't even with their regiments. But despite this, the parliamentarians had failed to make their intentions clear to the king that their army was intended solely for defence, not attack, was not communicated. So, on the misty morning of the 12th of November, 1642, the Royalist army prepared for battle. When Charles's army formed up on Hounslow Heath, it did so with the expectation that the parliamentary army sighted the night before would soon attack. But as we heard, the parliamentarian forces were not in a position to go on the offensive. 
So at 11am, Charles gave the order to advance east, towards the town of Brentford. Brentford was held by two regiments of infantry, about a dozen troops of cavalry, and three pieces of artillery. Preparations to halt the Royalist advance had already been made the previous day, and the road through Brentford was blocked in two places by barricades. The close confines of the road, with its hedges and enclosures, meant that the Royalists couldn't bring their full force against the small garrison. Instead, only Prince Rupert's cavalry, and six regiments of infantry commanded by Lord General Patrick Riven, Earl of Forth, were brought to bear against the defenders. Covered by the mist, the attack came as a surprise to the parliamentary forces. Again, Rupert's cavalry had incredible success, chasing off their parliamentary counterparts almost immediately. What followed was a brutal skirmish lasting about two hours, which the Royalists won handily. They swept through the town, with one officer recalling the close quarters, quote, push of pikes and the butt-end of muskets. The attempt to hold the bridge over the Brent River, which gave the town its name, ended in disaster for the parliamentarian defenders. Desperate to escape the slaughter, many tried to swim across the Brent, or, even more difficult, across the Thames. Very few made it. Even royalist witnesses were horrified by the sight. Quote, it was a heartbreaking object to hear and see the miserable deaths of so many godly men. But what was most pitiful was to see how many poor men ended and lost their lives striving to save them, for they ran into the Thames. End quote. In the aftermath of the skirmish at Brentford, parliamentary pamphleteers had a heyday describing the alleged atrocities of the Royalists. The routing soldiers hadn't merely run into the water in a desperate attempt to escape, they had been captured and deliberately drowned, or forced at gun and pike point into the water while being mocked, or even used as human shields to seize the rest of the town. In the same publications, the town itself was reportedly looted of everything of value, while its citizens were mutilated, raped, or taken prisoner. It goes without saying that much of this was invented or exaggerated, but Brentford was nevertheless a bloody victory for Charles. Brentford was close enough to London proper that the sounds of this battle were heard by the citizenry, and parliamentary leaders, including Essex, began concentrating their forces for a confrontation. Once Brentford fell, Charles's army was free to advance the next day onto Turnham Green. There, the king was faced by the full might of what Parliament could bring to bear. At this point, Charles's army numbered around 12,000 men. Essex's army, bolstered as it was by the newly recruited London-trained bands, was closer to 20,000. Lipscomb points out that this was one of the largest military confrontations on British soil since the Wars of the Roses. But that's all it was a confrontation. As in, both sides formed up in front of the other, but neither side was willing to commit to a battle. Essex and other leading parliamentarians still hoped for a peaceful solution, and so despite having earlier sent out forces to flank the royalist position, Essex ordered their return. For Charles, he looked at the dug-in defenders who outnumbered his army handily and realised they weren't going to attack. With his supplies of ammunition low, and facing the daunting prospect of an assault on superior numbers, 
Charles gave up on his attempt to end the Civil War quickly. He wasn't going to take London, at least not yet. And so, after a tense standoff, by the end of the 13th of November 1642, the Royalist army had withdrawn back across the Brent River. The king was able to spend the night at one of his old homes, Hampton Court Palace, which might have been nice if it didn't remind him of how things used to be. The next day, his army set off again, retracing their route back west. Less than three weeks after the confrontation at Turnham Green, Charles was back in Oxford. The chance to end the war had passed, and the Royalists began preparing to continue this struggle into the new year. None of them knew that Oxford would become the Royalist capital of England for the next four years. For the rest of 1642, both sides largely avoided campaigning, at least in the south, instead setting up their winter quarters. Parliament was centred on London, of course, and established garrisons to guard the western and northwestern approaches to the capital, going so far as to abandon some of their isolated positions beyond that line, including Worcester and Hereford. The troops from these garrisons were transferred to the more secure Bristol and Gloucester. For the Royalists, Oxford rapidly became more than just a lengthy stopover, and over the winter turned into the de facto Royalist capital. Charles's court was re-established in the city, along with whatever military infrastructure the Royalists could bring with them or recreate. For example, since Parliament held most of the arsenals and foundries for forging new artillery, a new foundry was established at Oxford with limited success. After their return to Oxford on the 29th of November, the Royalists left behind garrisons at Reading, Wallingford and Abingdon. If you don't know the geography of this part of England, don't worry. The important thing to know is that these were effectively a protective screen covering Oxford's vulnerable south and southeastern flanks. If Essex suddenly went on the offensive, he wouldn't be able to advance on the Royalist capital without warning or resistance. But Charles was not content to merely sit and wait, despite establishing a defensive line. For example, Prince Rupert's cavalry was mustered at Abingdon, from where it could ride out into parliamentary territory at short notice. His hope was to return to the offensive after winter in a three-pronged advance on London, with advances from the north, west and the southwest of the capital. In the meantime, he would secure his position and legitimacy while holding out hope of foreign intervention and for the success of his commander in the north, the Earl of Newcastle. Newcastle had taken over command of the scattered royalist forces in the north. The Earl spent the rest of 1642 defeating the northern parliamentary forces piecemeal. John Hotham, governor of Hull, planned to combine his forces with the garrison of Scarborough Castle under Hugh Cholmley, and Lord Ferdinando Fairfax's militia drawn from the towns of Bradford and Halifax. They would converge on York and take it. Newcastle was determined to stop this. He first drove off Hotham's force at Pierce Bridge before riding south to York, arriving on the 3rd of December. Three days later, Newcastle confronted Lord Fairfax at nearby Tadcaster, massively outnumbering the parliamentarians. Newcastle commanded 4,500 men, whereas Fairfax had recently faced massive desertions and so only commanded about 1,500. Fairfax withdrew, and Newcastle followed, taking control of a key crossing at the River Eyre at Ferry Bridge. This cut off the retreating Fairfax from key recruiting grounds at Bradford 
Halifax, Wakefield and Leeds, and Newcastle could return to York feeling rather pleased with himself. Yet, just over a week later, Bradford came under parliamentary attack under Lord Fairfax's son, and the Nottinghamshire town of Newark fell to Parliament. Nevertheless, as Christmas passed and the new year of 1643 began, Charles and his commanders could feel hopeful for the future. But, as we shall see, the Royalists would face significant difficulties in the north. Lord Ferdinando Fairfax was a talented enough commander, but there's a reason that he is not the most famous Fairfax of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. That would be his son, Sir Thomas Fairfax, Black Tom, a veteran of the Dutch Wars, and the Lieutenant General of Horse under his father. He would soon rise much higher. But that will be for a future episode. Next time, we will cross back over the Irish Sea, as we catch up with the events of the last year, and cover the early months of the Irish Confederacy. Thanks to my House of Lords, which has been joined by Sue Bremner, Duchess of Wellington. Brendan Nelson Vice is now Earl of Kinloss, William Pendleton is Earl of Dorset, and Baron Bengt Ake Anderson. If you'd like to join their ranks and receive ad-free versions of this and every other episode, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Thanks to listener Declan for his donation through PayPal. The link to this is in the description of the episode. Thank you to everyone who's recommended this podcast to a friend. It's the single best way to help a podcast grow. Thank you as well to everyone who's left a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podjacer, and all the rest. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords for their support, and as always, to you for listening. <laughs>